Welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. This is where we answer your Bible questions. Temptation is not sin. It's when we yield ourselves to that thing. That's when it becomes sin. I believe what this is, and I'm going to trust you. So what prophecies were they studying that helped them know when the Messiah would come? That's a good question. And I think we've got a pretty good answer for you here. Hey there, and welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. I'm John Bradshaw. On this program, we take the opportunity to answer Bible questions submitted by It Is Written viewers. Actual questions from actual people, and actually, I have the actual Wes Peppers with me here. Good to be doing this with you, Wes. Thank you very much. Great to be here, Pastor John. Thank you so much. We have some outstanding questions. The first one... It's a delicate question, really, I think, because everybody deals with this issue. Sandra asks the question, What does it mean if you don't forgive someone, God won't forgive you? Now, that's what the Bible says. Jesus was really clear about that. Um, Don't be thinking that God will forgive you if you refuse to forgive somebody else. Now, I will say to Sandra, forgiveness is uh, is a growing thing. So... Somebody is in their home, a gunman walks in and shoots somebody dead and runs off. Sorry, but that's the scenario. No one is expecting you to look at your dead relative and say, it's okay, I forgive that person. This is a challenge. It's a growing thing. It's a struggle. People who have to deal with the the, the big things in life, the big decision questions, they don't arrive there like that usually. Take some time. It takes some prayer. It takes some spiritual maturity. It takes some some thinking through and some surrendering to God. Okay, Wes, that's the question. Uh, if you don't forgive someone, God won't forgive you. What does that mean? Yeah, it just, you know, when when God forgives you, it does something in your own heart. Yes. And it develops a forgiveness for others. It doesn't make it easy. It may not be easy. You may have a very serious situation where it's difficult to forgive someone. Someone's killed your relative, died in a car accident. My grandmother was killed in a car accident when I was five by a man who shouldn't have been driving and he knew better. How do you forgive those kind of scenarios? My dad left my mom. Divorce. All kinds of pain and suffering in this world. It can be hard. But as we go to God and we see in our own lives what God has forgiven us for, it begins to change our hearts and it begins to warm our hearts. And God can give us that gift of forgiveness to someone else. It is possible. I think of Corey Tim Boom. You know, she mm. was going around after World War II and the Holocaust, and she had been in the prison camp, and she was preaching on forgiveness and how she had forgiven. And after one of her lectures, she hears a voice that she was very well familiar with. It was one of the guards that had been watching over her and her sister, who had been especially cruel to in, in, her in a concentration camp. Yeah, in a concentration camp, she heard his voice when she, after the war when she was giving a talk. And he said, God has forgiven me, can you? And she said she extended her hand, and her hand was trembling, but God gave her the strength to forgive. And so it's an act of God. It's really not an act of yourself. You have to have God's love in your heart to forgive, but it is possible. If you refuse that, really what it demonstrates is that the forgiveness of God in your own life really never took place yeah, because it would really, it can change you. Yeah, it simply hasn't impacted you the way forgiveness should. Um, where Jesus was was at a certain place one time, 
he spoke to a fellow named Simon. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed him 500 pence, the other 50. When they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? One had a debt 10 times greater than the other. Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. Jesus said, essentially, that's right. If you've been forgiven much and you have, then you will forgive much. You must. It can be difficult, but, but God's in the business of difficulty. And you don't want to be a Christian who's mean-spirited or a Christian who won't forgive. You want to be a Christian who has allowed God to do the seemingly impossible in your life. Give God the chance to do that. Amen. Okay, I have another question here. This one is from Michelle. When God said, let us make man in our image, what's this question posed to the devil? Well, I hope that uh, God didn't suggest to the devil, let us make man in our image, yeah. uh, in the devil's image. No. Well, some of the people you meet. Mm, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Some of the people you wonder about that, and maybe they were made only in the devil's image. But uh, obviously, the Bible says that Christ, John chapter 1, Christ was with God when he created the world. And God would, the Father would have been speaking to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. There's that Godhead. Yes, yes. Remembering the Godhead. Let us make man in our image. He was yes. speaking to the Son and yes. the Spirit. That's, that's right. That's what that is. Anthony asks a question you should be able to answer in no time at all. If people are referred to as the flock in Scripture, Acts twenty twenty eight, why and what exactly did, did Abel sacrifice? Because he took something of the flock. Was it a human? The answer is... No, thank God, no. Amen. Next, but, question. Uh, Next I w- question. I would just say real quick oh, yeah? that the lamb that he chose to sacrifice was a representation of Jesus, but it wasn't actually a human, mm-hmm. thank God. Mm-hmm. Trinity asks, how does blood make atonement for the soul? So the blood that shed is not so much about the actual blood itself, but it's about the life that was lived. And the atonement that we have with God is simply Christ serving as our substitute we sinned, we deserve to die. Christ was willing to be our substitute, and he died. And it's his blood that shed mm-hmm. that gives the cleansing and the forgiveness for sin. That's right. Hey, what a remarkable thing. We, <laughs> we can sit here and talk about Jesus died. Next question, please. Yeah. Jesus that's, died. Yeah, that's right. The divine Son of God gave his life, shed yeah. his blood, for wretched human beings. For us and because of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gave his life. So he was in heaven where everything is perfect. Mm-hmm. Heaven looked down upon this earth and said, there's only one thing that will save them. Because they have broken my law, there needs to be a sacrifice that can bear their sins. Yes. Jesus said, it can only be me. I'm the lawgiver. Only my life could really count for their life. Jesus died so that his death would take the place of our death. Then he lived, or he lived, that his life would be credited to our life. Yes. Heaven went through so much. If it was me and you in heaven, we'd have said, no, forget them. Our selfishness probably would have said that. Yeah. But he wasn't just a substitute, as if could be one of many, but he was the substitute, the only one that could, mm-hmm. and the only one that did. And thank God that he was willing, and his love for us is infinitely more than our pain that we've caused to him. That's right. It's a wonderful thing. Shanice asks, I always hear about peace on earth and goodwill towards men, but where is it? That's what the angels saying, really, uh, at Luke 2.14, yes. at Bethlehem, or close to Bethlehem when Jesus was born. What do you say to Shanice? Where is the peace on earth and the goodwill towards men? Well, that's a, that's a good question because you don't see much of it these days. You don't see much peace or goodwill or hope. 
It should be. In the earth, it should it be. It should be in the hearts of believers. That's right. You know, you can complain about about wicked people, lost people, non-Christian, atheists, whatever, whatever. And there's some perfectly fine and nice people who don't believe in Jesus. But you shouldn't expect too much from people who don't claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior and don't claim the Bible as their moral guide to life. You shouldn't expect too much of them. But the world has a right to expect much of you. If you have named the name of Jesus, then it is your responsibility, your privilege, your opportunity to turn your heart over to Jesus and allow him to live his life in you. And therefore, you get to demonstrate peace on earth and goodwill towards all, as a matter of fact. Yeah. The peace is also the peace that comes into our hearts when we receive Christ, when we accept him, and the goodwill of God towards men. He was extending the olive branch when he gave Christ offering us peace, hope, and salvation. So both of those are really initiated by God for us and to us. Here's a question from Roger. If every lost person is going to be burned up in hell, why would God resurrect from death? So it's written, just to kill them again. Listen, this is a really good question. Mm -hmm. So we live, we die. When Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ rise, right? We're taken to heaven with there for a thousand years. Uh, after the thousand years, the lost are raised to be destroyed. Couldn't you have just left those lost people in the grave, not destroy them? Couldn't you? It'd be difficult because uh, that final judgment gives a revelation to them of why they're lost. The question. Yeah, but listen, why does it matter? They yeah. got, they're lost anyway. Who cares? Who well, cares what they think? You know, the devil's making these accusations against God. You're unfair. You're unfair. And the the argument could be made by the devil. Oh, if you would raise them, they would change their hearts. They mm. would turn towards you. But you're going to leave them in the grave. And so it really has as much to do with the fairness of God in the great controversy, in the battle, as it does many other things. You know, you know the Bible says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Mm-hmm. Well, that has not yeah, happened. That's right. Yeah. Death penalty is an interesting thing. It's hard to know how you are not shaken when somebody is on their way to the electric chair mm-hmm. and they're saying, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. Now, many a guilty person has said, I didn't do it. That didn't prove anything, but, you know, that's a, little, that's a funny little thing. It is. What happens here? Every knee will bow. Not Up until this point, every knee has not bowed. Every knee has not bowed. Every tongue has not confessed. What happens is this. The Christians have bowed and confessed. Mm-hmm. Yep. But at the end of the millennium, where the lost are raised, it is then that they say, God, you were right. That's right. And we were wrong. That's right. You were right. We were wrong. Yep. Then when they no longer exist, it can be said they have acknowledged the supremacy of God and the justice of their faith. That's right. That's important. It's powerful. And by the time we get to the end of the millennium, when the wicked are destroyed, every category of, of created beings have had their questions answered and their hearts are satisfied in the justice of God. Before Jesus comes, there's a judgment that decides who's saved and who's lost. God's answering the questions of the angels. During the thousand years, when Jesus comes, he's answering the questions of the righteous. At the end, when the wicked are resurrected, he'll show them why they were lost. Yes. And any doubts that they had or anybody had are answered so that the justice and character of God is cleared at the mm. end of that time. God is not only just, but he is seen to be just. That's right. And that's really, that's really right. important. I got another question from Roger, but it's a different Roger to the last Roger. And Roger asks... Matthew eleven nineteen says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, 
and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber. Why was Jesus called a wine-bibber? That's a, a, a wine-drinker. Yeah. yeah a, a Why'd they call him that? Why'd they call him that? It wasn't true. Why'd they call him that? Well, the answer is kind of found even in the accusation. It says, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yeah. That's because Jesus went and ate with those people, and he, and he spent time with those people. He wasn't partaking of the unclean things or the, the drunken things or any of that, but he sought to reach their hearts, and so he had to go associate with them. So he had dinner with them. He spent time with them. And those who were self-righteous looked on that and said, Hey, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Jesus says, I'm doing the exact thing I came here for, to reach those who are sick. And so he, many of those people were changed. They left off those things. But the, the Pharisees were constantly trying to accuse Jesus. If he did this, they'd accuse him of that. And if he did that, they'd accuse him of this. So it's just an accusation. And Jesus wasn't thrown off or, or disturbed by that. We shouldn't either when people call That's us right. names. That's right. That's right. Don't be worried when people make accusations against you for the gospel's sake. It's okay. We don't need to justify ourselves or contend for our reputations or our rights, generally speaking. Let God take care of that. They say terrible things about Jesus. If they say something about you that's not true, then you can say, I'm in pretty good company. Take it as a compliment. Amen, amen. If you have a question you'd like for us to answer, we hope you'll email it to us at lineuponline at iiw.org. With West Peppers, I'm John Bradshaw. More in a moment of Line Upon Line brought to you by It Is Written. Miracles, events that can only be explained as the actions of an all-powerful God. If you look at the Bible, you'll find it's full of miracles. Parting the Red Sea, healing the blind, walking on water, raising the dead. Many have claimed these events never happened. But did they? Is it important for Christians to believe in miracles? And do they still happen today? Join me for Do You Believe in Miracles? We'll meet some remarkable people and hear some incredible stories. We'll learn what miracles are and what they're not. And we'll discuss the greatest miracle of all time. One that has significance for every human being on earth and the potential to change your life entirely. Do You Believe in Miracles? Brought to you by It Is Written TV. It is great to have you with us on Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. Thank you for taking your time with us. With Wes Peppers, I'm John Bradshaw, and together we've got an armload of your Bible questions. Line Upon Line at IIW.org. If you would like to email us a question, we'll do our best, our best, to give you a Bible answer to your Bible questions. Wes, Alicia asks this question, Does God know that I am going to be saved or not? Does it mean that he predestines us. Yeah, certainly, Alicia, he knows everything. He's all-knowing, all-powerful. But some people wrestle with that because they think if he knows everything, doesn't that mean he's already chosen it for you? Okay, if you have a cat and the cat walks into the house, you know the cat is going to go straight to the refrigerator, yes, right? almost every at, time. At a given time, given right, time. Right. Kid walks in the room and there's a plate of cookies on the table. Mm-hmm. Kid is going straight for the cookies. My kids will every yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Does that mean, then, that you predestined them to go to that, man, you know that little, that raspberry square thing that your daughter Liana makes? It's mm-hmm. just about the best thing on the it planet. It is. She loves those, and she it's does a great job so with them. so good. They're very good. 
I can imagine she's got a plate of that there. The fact that you know that Levi's going to make a beeline for that and grab yeah. one. Yeah, or you yeah. or me. Yeah, well, I'll make a beeline and grab the whole yeah. plate because they're so good. Does that mean that we've been predestined to that? It does not. No. It just no, means it God knows what you're going to do because he yes. knows what you're going to do. You know. And this is amazing to me because... That, to me, testifies even more of his love. Absolutely. And more of his patience because he knows what choice we're going to make. And yet, you know, if I know somebody's going to make a choice, if I know they're going to make a bad choice, it's like, oh, why bother? God doesn't do that. Jesus washed Judas's yes, feet. Yes, knowing. Knowing that he was going to betray him. Mm-hmm. It was even prophesied. He wasn't That's prophesied right. by name. That's right. The 30 pieces of silver right. and the potter's field, yeah. all that was prophesied. And yet Jesus, like... I'm showing you the love of God here. I'm washing your feet. I'm giving you every opportunity to repent, every opportunity to yes. repent. Yeah. He carries us through that for us. Correct. For us to see. It's a pr- powerful concept. So, Alicia, the fact that God does know does not mean that God forces the point. He simply knows. He's all-knowing. Isn't it interesting? Because now you start to say, well, when he created the earth, did he know that the, that the fall was going to take place? You'd have he to did. assume, you'd sure have to assume that he did. And he went through with creation anyway, knowing that it would cost heaven more than we could even imagine. So don't think that that's God forcing the point. That's not what that is. That's simply God being God. He knows, and you are glad that he knows. Here's a question from Melanie. It's regarding John 20 and verse 23. Here's a question. I have the understanding that only God can forgive sin, not man unlike what some churches teach. So, how do I reconcile my belief and this passage? We better take a look at John 20 and verse 23. Let's do that. Mm. John 20 and verse 23. This is Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. He said, Whatsoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Mm. You know, my Catholic dad quoted this verse more than once to justify the whole idea of confession to a priest and having the priest say, Ego te absolvo, I absolve you. But we know that it's entirely inappropriate to confess your sins to a human being looking for forgiveness. Wildly inappropriate. Mm -hmm. So what's this then? Mm -hmm. Well, it's very simple that the disciples are just simply announcing were preaching the gospel of Christ to people, and whenever they preach, the people make the decision themselves. And if they uh, accept that, then their sins are forgiven. If they refuse it, then the sins remain. And it's not saying that, that no human has the ability to make that decision for another. Correct. It's simply a person receiving the gospel message. And Jesus is saying here that when you act as the leaders of the church, as the uh, let's say, for example, oh, I don't know, there's a situation that they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And they're not quite certain which way they ought to go as the leaders of the church. And they pray about it and they decide to go one way or the other. What Jesus is saying is that the decision that you make will be yes. in harmony with the decision in heaven. It's not saying you forgive and God will go, oh, okay, forgiven. That's absolutely backwards. It's them saying when you deal with the situation in your capacity as church leaders, you can know that if you follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, that the decision you make here is consistent with God's will and God's decision. Mm-hmm. That's a world away from 
ego yeah. te absolvo. That's right. You know, that's just, that's not great. And there's really no other passage that even remotely insinuates that in all the Bible. So mm. very, very clear about yeah, it. Absolutely. In fact, in fact, you know, when Jesus said, your sins be forgiven thee, the Pharisees were apoplectic. Mm-hmm. They're like, who can forgive sins but, but God, God alone? alone. So let's not, look, Here's what I know. Your upbringing, your culture, your background can be very, very powerful. There are people who believe some pretty funny things, but that's their culture or their upbringing. You understand? And it's really hard to shed that. It's really hard to shed that. No matter what it is. That's why you come to this book and you say, I'll just believe this. When I became a Christian, I had attended... a church all my life, but, you know, it didn't take the Bible as its rule of faith and practice. When I came to the Bible, I had a lot of unlearning to do, a lot, but that was okay. Where I was convinced that the Bible was true, that the Bible was the Word of God, you've just got to go with that. That's the best decision every time. Anne asks us this question. Oh, this won't take you long, Wes. I heard someone saying that when people go to heaven, they'll be baptized at the river. Is there any Bible passage to support this statement? No, there is none. All right, next question. Marie asks, We do not have access to the tree of life lest we live forever. But what about Satan? Must be referring to Adam and Eve, right, back Mm -hmm. then, yeah. He seems to be living forever without the tree of life, at least until God destroys it. So here's the question. Without the tree of life, what's up with Satan living? Why isn't he Mm -hmm. dead well, Satan is a different being than Adam and Eve were. He is an angel. Angels were created, like everything else, to live forever. And the, um, the impact on, of sin on Satan's life has been different than it has been on ours. Now, certainly I'm guessing that sin has had an impact on him, and he's reaching the point where he will be destroyed. Yeah. But he's not an immortal being. His time is short, Jesus said. The, the time will run out. He'll face the time of judgment. Uh, so it's not... The, it's not the same scenario. Yeah, not the same scenario. He's an angel, not a human. He's of a different order altogether. Now, this next question is sneaky. David asks us a question. That's four questions. But, David, I'm okay with it because your question, of course, is a great question. And if you want to get four for the price of one, we are up to it. At least we'll give it a shot. So here's the question from David. Mm -hmm. I understand that the Bible says death is a sleep, but there are lots of difficult Bible texts to answer. Well, there's a handful. Like absent from the body, the thief on the cross, the rich man and Lazarus, and the souls under the altar. How important is it to understand this doctrine correctly, and does it matter? David, it is of inestimable importance, and it really, really matters. It doesn't mean that you can't be saved if you don't understand it, but it does mean that you can be really deceived if you don't understand it. Um, and not understanding what happens with the dead, that has a flow-on effect because now you've got the millennium, that's all, all wonky, and hellfire, which can be turned upside down. You want to keep your ducks in a row. You want to keep it all straight. So which one are you starting with? I'll start with uh, absent from the body. Okay. Second to, Corinthians 5, verse 8. That's yeah. right. I want to say before that, some of the worst deceptions at the end of time that the devil throws at humanity yes. deal with this topic. Revelation 16, verse 13 says that that's clearly right. that spirits of devils working miracles are going to deceive the world. And so it's something you definitely want to know the truth about. Yeah. So absent from the body, Second Corinthians 5, verse 8, Paul says this. I'll start in verse 7. 
For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now, there's a much longer answer that we can give, and you can find that on It Is Written TV. Uh, But the key is in the very first verses of that chapter. He talks about being clothed with immortality versus being in this limited human body. And he talks about uh, when God's going to give us that immortal body. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is another passage that helps define that. But if you read this verse very uh, carefully and slowly, amazing things happen. Let's read it again. It doesn't say what people says it says. It doesn't say say it says. He says, we are confident, yes, well pleased. The key word is rather Mm -hmm. to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. He's making the point that we're not, but we'd rather be. We're not, but we'd rather be. And so he doesn't say that when we're absent from the body, we are present with the Lord, but that we would like to be. Now, when does that happen? Oh, First same, Corinthians 15. same Bible writer tells us. That's right. First Corinthians 15 says at the, at the end of time, at the last trump, the resurrection, when Jesus comes again, we're, this uh, mortal will be swallowed with immortality. And so that's the time. You've got to put all these passages together in the same topic. That's why, Pastor John, we don't let one verse That's right. dictate our theology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put it all together. We certainly don't allow one misread verse. That's right. That's right. Speaking to a lady, I believe this was in Pulaski, Tennessee, and uh, I showed her this verse. She said, no, that's not the one. It's got to be somewhere yeah. else in the yeah. Bible. I said, ma'am, yeah. seriously, this is the only place. No, my preacher said that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. God bless her. She stopped thinking and allowed some preacher to yes. do her thinking for Dangerous her. thing. Thief on the cross. Jesus said to him, Verily I say unto thee, Today you will be with me in paradise. No, no, no. Jesus didn't go to paradise that day. That was Friday, Sunday morning. He had said to Mary, Haven't been to see my father in heaven. People will say, Oh, paradise and heaven are two different places. They're not. They're the same place. He said to the thief on the cross Friday afternoon, Mr. Thief, I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. He was giving him assurance. You move the comma. I say unto thee, Today you'll be with me in paradise. It doesn't make sense anymore. The punctuation in the Bible was not inspired. It was added many hundreds of years after the Bible was written by well-meaning Bible translators who the vast majority of the time got it right. Why did God permit this one to be wrong? I think so that we would study and we wouldn't just take things at face value and we wouldn't drink down whatever it is the preacher serves up when he says mm-hmm. that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, for example. No, Jesus didn't go to paradise that day. So there you go, my friend. We have answered that one for you. That happened Sunday that he went to paradise. The thief hasn't gone there yet. He won't go until Jesus returns. Thankfully, that day is soon. Rich man and Lazarus, how do you, how do you define that? Very simply, very quickly. Um, you look in Luke chapter 16. That's where you find the passage. It starts the, the story with a phrase. There was a certain rich man. If you go back... All the way to chapter 13, 14, and 15, you find a series of stories where Jesus starts it the exact same way. A certain man. They're simply parables. There's no way, you know, down in verse 24, that one drop of water on the tip of the tongue is going to cool the agony of hell. And there's numerous other things. The rich man, or Lazarus, goes to the bosom of Abraham. That's a mighty big bosom. So it's all these symbols, and it's not a literal story. Revelation 6, verse 9, souls under the altar... It's symbolic. They're not a whole bunch of souls under an altar in heaven. Symbolic language. Justice is crying out to be done. Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. 
or for the price of one. Yes. Thanks for being with us. Be sure to join us next time for more Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written.